Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In late April 1916, violence engulfed the streets of Dublin, Ireland. Irish rebels laid siege to the city, among them militant and supporting women who were willing to fight and die for Irish independence. Among them were 60 members of the Cumann the Women's Auxiliary Force of the Irish Volunteers, but also a number of women members of the Irish Citizens' Army, including the fierce Constance Gorbuth Markovich, the trade unionist Winifred Carney, and the Scottish sharpshooter Margaret Skinner, who thought to, quote, do her part for Ireland. For most of the 20th century, histories and nationalist mythologizing excluded women from the narratives of the Easter Rising. There's a famous photo of the Irish rebels' surrender, in which Patrick Pierce stands before two British soldiers. Irish nurse Elizabeth O'Farrell, who ministered to the rebels' wounded in the general post office throughout the conflict, was airbrushed out of that famous photo. Early iterations left her feet and part of her skirt visible next to Pierce's feet. Later iterations of the photo removed even those traces of her from the photo. To those documenting the Easter Rising, having a woman waving the white flag alongside hero and martyr Patrick Pierce didn't fit in with the nationalist mythology they were attempting to cultivate. Women were effectively airbrushed out of the story entirely. Airbrushed. Ireland brushed. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. E-I-R-E brush. Oh, yes. Very clever. This was made possible, at least in part, because of the marginalization of women's groups that were central to the nationalist movement. Kumanaman, the celebrated women's auxiliary unit associated with the Irish volunteers who launched the Easter Rising, struggled against marginalization from their founding in April 1914 up through the Easter Rising. They were excluded from planning or sent away from their assigned posts during the Rising because many of their male counterparts considered them unfit for service. And this marginalization has a much longer history. Organizations like the Ladies' Land League and the Irish Women's Franchisement League are rarely discussed as central to the broader narrative of the Irish home rule and independence movement. But the Ladies' Land League maintained the land war until Charles Stuart Parnell ordered them to stop when he and his fellow leaders of the Men's Land League were in prison. And women's suffrage in 1918 was essential to the election of the Sinn Féin members who established the first doll in 1919. Women's organizations were central to the Irish independence movement. Those who were too loud, too feminist in orientation, or too outspoken were largely expunged from the official narratives. Sounds familiar. Only individual women, like Constance Markovich, who were heroes in their own right, could be lauded, and not as representatives of broader movements, but instead as outliers who acted unlike real women. As historians like Margaret Ward have shown, the range of experiences are important to understand understanding what it was like to be a woman in 20th century Ireland. There's an interesting mix here of those who bowed to the strict gender regime of a Catholic nationalist ideology, of those who resisted it until their dying breath, and of those who just wanted to do their thing and rode whatever horse got them into battle. In the last 20 years, we've finally seen scholarship that has revised the narrative of Irish independence. 
Margaret Ward's 1995 Unmanageable Revolutionaries, follows the key women's organizations that helped shape the Irish nationalist movements of the late 19th and 20th centuries. Though a great deal has been written in the interim, I always go back to this text because it peels back the layers of women's work in the Irish nationalist movements. Hmm. While women are still not front and center of most popular representations of events like the Easter Rising, they can no longer be denied their place in the story of Irish independence from the mid-19th century up through the 20th, and particularly in that of the Easter Rising. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Sarah Hanley-Cousins. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG. Listeners, we're part of an exciting new community, the Himalaya app. This is your... This is a space where you can listen to all your favorite podcasts and for shows like ours, become a member in our community. For less than $3 a month, you'll get access to the back catalog of our episodes ad free. We'll also be sharing some exclusive content with our members in the near future. So download the Himalaya app and make it your go-to for all things podcast. We also want to be sure to thank all of our Patreon supporters, but especially our auger and excavator level patrons. Eric, Maddie, Colin, Susan, Christopher, Peggy, Danielle, Anne, Maggie, Iris. Though your numbers grow every month, each and every one of you is a miracle to us. Thank you for thinking us worthy of your generous support. We love you. In the second half of the 19th century, the majority of Irish nationalists agitated for home rule, a constitutional approach to autonomy and domestic affairs, effectively a return to the way things were before the 1801 Act of Union. Through the Act of Union, the British government dissolved the Irish parliaments and installed a British administration in Ireland to oversee direct rule from London. There was a counter-movement in the north among Ulster Unionists, primarily Protestants who wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom, citing things like if the Irish ruled Ireland, it would be Catholic majority, and then home rule would mean Rome rule. Oh, the irony. For those of you unfamiliar with the Northern Irish discrimination against Catholics, the irony will be lost. Like me. (laughs) (laughs) But start with Patrick Radden Keith's very readable Say Nothing, and then you will understand. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the Home Rule bills that were introduced in the 1870s through the 1890s were always defeated. Sometimes they didn't make it through the House of Commons, but if they did, they were always vetoed by the House of Lords. But most Irish people, those who cared about the issue anyway, preferred a constitutional solution to Irish autonomy. Throughout the 19th century and into the 20th, the militant rebellions were always fringe groups. The 1848 Young Irelanders, the 1867 Fenians, including the Irish Americans who crossed the border from Buffalo to Canada and tried to, quote, hold Canada hostage in exchange for Irish independence, um, which is always one of my favorite stories, personally. And, of course, the 1916 Easter Rising weren't widely popular for the most part. And that isn't surprising. There are always going to be major divides between those who think that violence is a viable solution to injustice and oppression and those who abhor violence and believe that it is unacceptable in any situation. 
So even though Charles Stuart Parnell, the golden boy of the Irish Parliamentary Party and leader of the Home Rule movement in the 1880s and early 90s, was the leader of the Irish National Land League and an agitator in the land wars of 1878 to 1882, he and his supporters were primarily focused on a parliamentary act to establish Irish autonomy, a Home Rule bill. The land wars, unlike the 48ers or the Fenians, were engaged in rural agitation and protest in support of tenant farmers, rather than trying to bring about Irish independence through militant activity. Their activities addressed immediate issues and provided relief to families being evicted from homes or taken advantage of by absentee landlords or unfair rents. Their long-term goals were to turn governance of domestic issues over to the Irish. That would solve the problems created by domestic issues like unfair rents and absentee landlordism. The land wars then supported the constitutional approach Parnell and his ilk pursued. They put pressure on Prime Minister William Gladstone to entreat with the Irish Parliamentary Party and to put home rule bills to a vote. But because of the veto power of the House of Lords, those votes never came to fruition. Women in the 19th century United Kingdom could not vote. They had little say in politics, though they had plenty to say. English, Scottish, Welsh, and Irish feminists were active throughout the 19th century. Women like Josephine Butler took on the Contagious Diseases Acts in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, which we discussed in our episode on syphilis in the British Empire, and ultimately pressured Parliament to repeal those laws. The Ladies' National Association had branches all over the British Isles, and though the Irish branch only ever had 49 subscribers between 1871 and 1885, it was a significant moment in political awareness among Irish women. It would be the start of some powerful, popular women's political organizations. Prior to Kumanaman, Ireland had three major women's nationalist organizations, the Ladies' Land League, the Irish Women Franchise League, and Inini Naharan, or the Daughters of Ireland. The Ladies' Land League, run by Anna and Fanny Parnell, was the counterpart to their brother, Charles Stuart Parnell's Nationalist Land League. Both groups agitated on behalf of tenant farmers, picking up an earlier rural movement to achieve the three Fs, fair rent, free sale, and fixity of tenure. According to historian R.F. Foster, in the countryside, the Land League, quote, reinforced the politicization of rural Catholic nationalist Ireland, partly by defining that identity against urbanization, landlordism, Englishness, and implicitly Protestantism. Maud Gaughan founded the Daughters of Erin. We won't butcher their Irish name anymore. There <laughs> just are too many confusing consonants. <laughs> uh, so Maud Gaughan founded the, the Daughters of Erin in 1900, and it operated independently until 1915 when it merged with Kumanaman. Unlike the Ladies' Land League, the Daughters were completely autonomous from other early 20th century nationalist organizations and dedicated to the reestablishment of the complete independence of Ireland. More radical than the Land League, or even really the Kumanaman who they had ultimately joined, the Daughters published a monthly magazine, Beyond Nairn, and uh, raised money for their cause through subscriptions and by staging elaborate tableau vivants on themes from Irish mythology. I love tableau vivants. Very fun. Gone and the daughters implemented school programs, organized reading groups and Irish language programs for women, and protested Irish involvement in the British Army during World War I. 
Gone created a space for the Irish women who wanted to do more for the independence cause and to ensure that the needs and rights of Irish women would be addressed in whatever form of autonomy Ireland achieved in the near future. Hannah Sheehy Skeffington and Margaret Cousins, oh, your Margaret cousin. Cousins, my cousin, no, not really, Maybe. founded the Irish Women's Franchisement League in 1908. From the start, it was a radical feminist suffragist movement. Their members put out a pro-suffrage nationalist newspaper, The Irish Citizen, were imprisoned for smashing up the windows of the general post office, and went on hunger strikes while in prison. While they kept a neutral stance on home rule, their primary goal was votes for women regardless of where those votes might take Ireland, they opposed World War I. The IWFL clashed most with John Redmond, leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, because he, and his party, voted against women's suffrage in 1913. So the 1910 election left the Liberals reliant on the Irish Parliamentary Party to form a government. Simultaneously, the House of Lords lost its veto. That shift gave the Irish politicians the power they needed to push through a home rule bill in 1912. And in response, the Unionists in Ulster formed a militia. 250,000 Ulster Protestant men pledged themselves to the Solemn League and Covenant to resist home rule. And in 1913, they formed the Ulster Volunteer Force. By April 1914, they had 24,000 German guns and a promise that any attempt to implement home rule would result in violence. Notably, 234,000 Ulster women signed a female counterpart to the Covenant. They were, of course, to play wholly supportive roles to the UVF and the men of the Covenant, but this was a much larger show of women than any of the nationalist or republican movements. They raised funds and trained as dispatch riders and nurses. When the UVF formed in the Ulster, the Republicans formed an equivalent in the South. The Irish volunteers included a few women at their inaugural meeting, though they too were separated from the main meeting of men. According to Margaret Ward, quote, through this separation, the work of female activists during the past decades was symbolically dismissed and women again relegated to the role of passive observers, excluded from any meaningful participation in political events. Only Patrick Pierce mentioned that the Irish volunteers were there to, quote, defend the rights common to Irish men and Irish women. The final manifesto produced by the volunteers promised that there would be, quote, work for women to do, though it was not made clear what that would be, other than not being in the marching line. The conversation of whether women would or should be included in the Irish Republican Brotherhood independence efforts continued in the months after the founding of the Irish Volunteers. As the IRB name suggests, there was no implicit space for women in the Republican cause. Though the IRB needed everyone, men and women, to rally to its cause, their appeals to women were pandering at best. They wrote Modgon's radical and autonomous daughters out of the 19th century nationalist narrative, even as they used her name to reassure potential women volunteers that their work for the nationalist cause would still be considered womanly. Caitlin DeBrun wrote in April 1914's edition of the Irish Volunteer that patriotic Irish women could look forward to making flags for the volunteers and not much else. That same month, the Kumunamon was founded, and de Brun's predictions seemed spot on. 
Kumanaman held its inaugural meeting on Thursday, April 5th at 4 p.m., which was, as Margaret Ward points out, hardly a convenient time for working women and tells you quite a lot about the organization itself and its members. The initial appeal was to women who did not need to work and could dedicate their time to the cause. It operated thusly for several years until patriotic women wrote letters of complaint to the papers, and finally they organized evening meetings for the broad base of their membership. At its start, it was made very clear by Agnes O'Farrelly, who presided over the first meeting, that Kumanaman would not take direct part in the defense of Ireland unless under extreme circumstances. Nor would members be permitted to debate political matters. That was men's domain. Instead, they'd, one, advance the cause of Irish liberty, two, organize Irish women in furtherance of that object, three, assist in arming and equipping a body of Irishmen for the defense of Ireland, four, form a fund for these purposes to be called the Defense of Ireland Fund. They would only participate in first aid training, drill, and signaling, and rifle practice when necessary. They would also, however, organize the Irish Boy Scouts. Constance Markovich taught many an Irish Boy Scout how to shoot. But for the most part, the ladies were relegated to fundraising. Woohoo! Hoorah! The Daughters of Ireland remained independent of Kumanaman until May 1915, when Constance Markovich negotiated their folding into the larger organization. The Daughters, who'd been wholly more autonomous than Kumanaman ever was, did so because they wanted to be part of the mass movement. As Elizabeth Cox had notes, this merger was particularly unfortunate because the Daughters were, by far, the most creative and independent women's organization in nationalist Irish history and lost much of their momentum in joining Kumanaman. In the year between their founding and the start of World War I, the members of Kumanaman, who were often the wives, sisters, and girlfriends of the volunteers, quote, sewed haversacks, learned first aid, and raised money for their men. It was a division of labor that duplicated the differentiation of sex roles in the wider society and discouraged the expression of any alternative views. This marginalization would continue in the years leading up to the Easter Rising, though not all members of Kumanaman accepted this marginalization. Constance Markovich was technically a member of the executive of Kumanaman, but probably only because she was involved in most women's nationalist organizations in the early 20th century. She felt that the rest of the Kumanaman leadership acquiesced too easily to the men of the volunteers. At a meeting of the Irish Women's Franchise League, Markovich said, quote, Today the women attached to national movements are there chiefly to collect funds for the men to spend. These ladies' auxiliaries demoralize women, set them up in separate camps, and deprive them of all initiative and independence. Take up your responsibilities and be prepared to go your own way, depending for safety on your own course, your own truth, and your own common sense. The two brilliant classes of women who follow this higher ideal are suffragettes and the trade union or labor women. In them lies the hope of the future. Markovich, who was a member of the Irish Citizen Army, tended to lean more toward the radical women's organizations. The IWFL used their radical, somewhat militant tactics to pursue their own ends. 
In its early years, Kumanaman seemed sublimated to the volunteers, and though its members regularly contested this characterization, the fact was that they didn't have control over the money they raised, their participation in all nationalist activities was auxiliary, and for women like Constance Markovich, that made the organization milquetoast at best. But then Franz Ferdinand was assassinated and Britain went to war. John Redmond of the Irish Parliamentary Party took control of the Irish Volunteers in June 1914. At first, Kumanaman didn't make any declarations against Redmond, even after he and the IPP opposed the suffrage bill in Parliament. But in October 1914, he offered the British government the services of the Irish Volunteers toward the war effort. And that, apparently, was too much. 170,000 volunteers did join the British war effort in some way, and just 11,000 volunteers stayed behind in protest. Kumanaman, on the other hand, opposed the Irish participation in the British war entirely. The leadership of Kumanaman issued a statement shortly after Redmond declared the volunteers for the war. Quote, we came into being to advance the cause of Irish liberty and to organize Irish women in furtherance of that object. We feel bound to make the pronouncement that to urge or encourage Irish volunteers to enlist in the British Army cannot, under any circumstances, be regarded as consistent with the work that we have set ourselves to do. Yes, girl. Hmm. Between October 1914 and March 1916, the volunteers, Kumanaman, and Irish Citizen Army prepared for battle. Kumanaman trained in first aid, stretcher bearing, and drill and signaling training. Some even started rifle practice. Winifred Carney, the labor unionist, came in first in a shooting competition between the volunteers and Kumanaman. By many accounts, the Kumanaman members seemed ready and eager for a full-fledged war. They brought in 900 guns and 25,000 rounds of ammunition purchased from the Germans with money raised by Kumanaman. Two gung-ho Kumanaman members, Nora and Ina Connolly, smuggled the goods to Belfast in the back of a car driven by a Boy Scout. Though they'd been excluded from the actual reception of the shipment off the Asgard, which is the writer Erskine Childers' 51-foot uh, yacht, they both agreed that the danger inherent in smuggling guns from Hoth to Belfast more than made up for missing the action earlier in the day. In the week leading up to Easter 1916, when parades and route marches were scheduled for the volunteers in Kumanaman all across the country, the women prepared medical kits. When the Home Rule Bill was passed in 1912, it was supposed to be rolled out within three years. It was complicated, of course, by the Ulster Volunteer Force in the North, and then put on hold indefinitely in 1914 when the war broke out. For the 11,000 volunteers who stayed behind, and indeed several other nationalist groups, including Kumanaman, they were tired of waiting for more unfulfilled politicians' promises. The war, which had Britain's army neatly tied up on the Western Front, was the perfect distraction. This would be an opportunity to seize control of Ireland once and for all and take the independence that clearly would not be just given. The planned Easter Sunday demonstrations were announced in newspapers all over Ireland. As indicated by their preparation of medkits, Kumanaman assumed that this meant the start of the revolution, even if things hadn't been spelled out in so many words. But the 900 guns from the Hoth run in 1914 were not enough to stage an uprising. 
The volunteers were awaiting the return of Sir Roger Casement, who was supposed to be delivering both Irish prisoners of war who could join the uprising and more German guns. Prior to joining the Irish Nationalist Revolution cause, Roger Casement was an international celebrity for his exposés of imperialist atrocities in the Belgian Congo and Peru. In fact, we talked about him um, in our discussion of, what was the episode? Heart of Darkness, or yes. hearts, hearts of Darkness, yes. right? About the, uh, was it the Belgian Congo? Yeah. Um, so for more on his work with those causes, definitely, definitely go there. Um, that was a really great episode. Anyway, <laughs> Casement had gone to Germany in 1916 on behalf of the volunteers to get more guns, which the Germans supplied, though not as many as he hoped, and to try to convince the Irish volunteers and soldiers who'd been captured by the Germans to join the independence struggle. They all turned him down. So he got, an, he got into a German submarine and headed back to Ireland, mostly empty-handed. But then... He got caught by the British. Not good. Not, <laughs> Not good. a good situation. Good. They hauled him off to London, charged him with treason, and sentenced him to death. At first, the public outcry against his arrest and conviction was strong. After all, he was a British hero. But then the British government leaked excerpts that were alleged to be from his private journals. These detailed sexual transactions with young men in the various ports around the world that he had visited. And once he was tainted with the rumors of homosexuality, his friends all kind of disappeared. A few, like Arthur Conan Doyle, W.B. Yeats, and George Bernard Shaw made appeals on his behalf, but to no avail. He was stripped of his knighthood and he was hanged at Pentonville Prison. Terrible. Terrible. At the same time, though, what's the but? He went during World War One, <laughs> yeah, to Germany and was like, "Hey, Germans, give us some guns that we can use against the British." Oh, there's not very many. I'll just take a fucking ride back to Ireland in this German U-boat. Yeah, I mean that seems kind of like you're. Did they need for to it. kill him though? No. You're talking about the British. Like, the British were, like, looking for excuses to kill people. It's true. They missed the <laughs> I am not days. belittling Roger Casement at all. But, like, there's a lot. There's a lot there. There's a lot. It's, there's you lot know, there. it's an onion. It's an onion. <laughs> <laughs> so, meanwhile, back in Ireland, Owen McNeil. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. Back right. at the ranch. No, back in Ireland, Owen McNeil, who was the leader of the Irish Volunteers, found out that Casement had been captured and there would be no additional guns or troops. He canceled the demonstrations, issuing his order via the newspapers, but then the leadership on the ground of the planned uprising just decided to ignore him and sent out messengers to say, hey guys, it's back on, but we'll do it Monday instead of Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Women, of course, carried most of the messages to disseminate these new orders, but it was all chaos. Some of the messages got delivered, some people didn't get the message, so it was like nobody knew what was going on. As a result, most of the events of the Easter Rising were concentrated just in Dublin, where the counter orders sort of emanated from. On the Monday after Easter, Easter Monday, if you will, yes. 1916, volunteers and Civic Army members descended on key locations around Dublin. They intended to take Dublin Castle, the seat of British power in Ireland, but they failed to penetrate it. Very sexualized language, Avril. Hey so instead, they took over the general post office. 
stamps are very sexy. <laughs> no, but it's symbolic of British, yeah. the British presence in, in Ireland. So yeah. I don't mean, again, to belittle anything. Because this was a time before phones. I'm just belittling. I think. All the Irish hate me now. I'm sorry. Yes, you're going to be burned in effigy. It's just like you go from like the castle to the post office. <laughs> I'm sorry. There are only so many cool <laughs> buildings in Ireland. No, I understand. Other than message runners, though, Kumanaman was left in the dark on all these plans. So six women, all like women from Kumanaman, were just like wandering around Dublin trying to figure out what their role was in this whole shebang. Um, so six of them finally headed to Jacob's Biscuit Factory, where they knew Thomas McDonough would be. Okay. Um, but they had to convince him to let them in, um, and they convinced him that he needed women for whatever he was going to be doing. Most of the women involved in the Rising had to fight their way into the insurgent camps before they could assist in the fight against British rule. According to Ward, Eilish Narayan, told to report for duty at 12 noon on the Monday, spent the whole day with other members of her branch in full kit at Palmerston Place, wondering what was going on as they listened to the sound of intermittent firing. At 6 p.m., a dispatch rider told them that their services were not required and they were to go home. They felt they had no alternative but to obey orders. However, Eilish and her friend Emily impulsively decided to go to the GPO, the General Post Office, volunteering for any work at all. The sentry suggested that they report to an outpost on the opposite side of O'Connell Street. This situation was only resolved late on the Monday when two members of Kumanaman managed to reach the general post office and informed Pierce, Connolly, and Clark, the leaders of the Rising, of the difficulties being experienced by women. A hasty mobilization order was then sent out so that by the evening of the first day, women were established in most of the major outposts. In total, there were six units of Irish volunteers, um, the members of the Irish Citizen Army and those Kumanaman who made their way to posts that accepted them, spread throughout the city, holding key positions. The General Post Office, Jacob's Bis Biscuit Factory, Boland's Bakery, the South Dublin Union, City Hall, and St. Stephen's Green. At the end of the day, the first day, Monday, April 24th, there were a total of 55 dead. 26 British military, 15 civilians, 11 rebels, and three Royal Irish Constabulary policemen. Women ended up serving under almost every commander around the city, many fighting alongside men, but most providing medical care, running messages between posts, and delivering supplies. There was only one exception, Eamon de Valera, who was a future prime minister of Ireland and author of the 1937 constitution that would bluntly identify women's place as, quote, in the home, he refused to have any women under his command. In 1937, he admitted that he told women who came to him to serve that he did not want them. Quote, I said we have anxieties of a certain kind here, and I do not want to add to them at the moment by getting untrained women, women who were clearly untrained for soldiering. I did not want them as soldiers in any case. That's not fair because they were training. They, they were, were trained. They were teaching the Boy Scouts how to mm -hmm. use guns. By Margaret Ward's estimate, 90 women took part in the Rising, 60 of them Kumanaman members, the rest of them from the Irish Citizen Army. No members of Kumanaman took part in the fighting, though their work was essential. That said, 
there were women who took up arms in the defense of Ireland. Among those were Winifred Carney, Constance Garbuth Markovich, and Margaret Skinner. Winifred Carney was a radical trade union activist who'd been agitating to improve the wages and conditions of mill girls in Dublin since 1912. She helped in fundraising and relief efforts for Dublin workers during the 1913 lockout, a major industrial dispute between 20,000 workers and 300 employers. James Connolly, an Irish Marxist, was one of the key organizers of the lockout. The strike lasted nearly five months and collapsed when the workers, many of whom were starving, went back to work and signed pledges not to join Connolly's union. Many of the socialists involved in the lockout and the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, or the ITGWU, were pulled into the Republican national politics that promised a better future for Irish men and women. Connolly was one. In 1916, he was one of the seven signers of the proclamation of Irish independence that launched the Easter Rising. He, along with Patrick Pierce, Eamon Kant, Tom Clark, Sean McDarmida, Thomas McDonough, and Joseph Plunkett, were all executed in the aftermath of the Rising. Winifred Carney, though she wasn't executed when it was all said and done, was another trade unionist pulled into the fray of the Republican cause. Her friendship with James Connolly, cultivated through their work in the lockout together, ensured that she wasn't cut out of the action. She joined the Citizen Army, said to be a crack shot with a rifle, and was the one who typed up dispatches and mobilization orders in preparation for the Easter Rising. Not to diverge too far from appropriate gender roles, however, she served as Connolly's personal secretary, lucky her, in the weeks leading up to and through the Easter Rising. She was the only woman in the column that seized the general post office on Easter Monday. She stayed at the GPO throughout the five days of the Rising, attending to the wounded, writing up orders and dispatches, and telling Patrick Pierce to bugger off when he suggested she get somewhere safe. She was interned at Mountjoy after the surrender on April 29th, then at Aylesbury from July to December, before her release on December 24th, 1916. Constance Gorbuth, sister of the poet and dramatist Eva Gorbuth, was known as the Countess because she married a member of the Polish nobility, the dashing playwright-slash-painter-slash-theater-director-slash-count Kazimir Dunin Markovich, and thus she became the Countess Markovich. Eva and Constance's father was an Anglo-Irish landlord. Of Constance, Margaret Skinner said, quote, She knew where all the men and women who loved Ireland were working, and sooner or later met them all, in spite of the fact that she was of planter stock and by birth of the English nobility in Ireland. Eva was involved in the labor movement and women's suffrage in Britain, and her sister, a well-known landscape artist who went to university in Dublin and then settled there to be part of the literary and art circles of Ireland, cared little for politics in her early days. The Gorbooths were good friends of W.B. Yeats, who wrote that the sisters were two girls in silk kimonos, both beautiful, one a gazelle. The gazelle was Constance. That's how she landed the count. Heyo! Kiss me. It wasn't until 1908 that Constance got involved in politics, and then she dove headfirst into Irish nationalist causes. She joined Sinn Féin, the leftist political party that would declare independence in 1919 and form the first Irish doll. She also joined the Daughters of Ireland, 
joined her sister in suffragist activities, including demonstrating against Winston Churchill's election in 1908. The suffragists were successful that year. They stopped Churchill from being elected then and advanced the possibility of women's right to vote a step further. In 1909, Markovich and her friend Bulmer Hobson founded Fianna Aaron, the Irish paramilitary Boy Scouts, which focused on teaching teen boys how to shoot. According to Margaret Skinner, quote, the Countess was one of the best shots in Ireland and taught the boys how to shoot. Yeah, girl. Yeah. In 1913, she was all in. She joined Connolly's Socialist Irish Citizen Army to protect demonstrators at the Dublin lockout. She sold all of her jewelry to buy potatoes to feed the strikers. And she helped the Daughters of Ireland set up a soup kitchen to feed poor children. Her husband moved back to Poland, never to return to live in Ireland again. By all accounts, the parting was amicable, though, and they exchanged letters for the rest of her life. He was also at her bedside when she died in 1927. I hope they had, like, conjugal visits or something. I they get the sense that she wasn't again? into dudes. Oh, she had, like, a good situation then. She did. She, like, had the count to, like, get her full of cash. Yeah. And then she sent him back to Poland to, like, be Casimir. Yeah. And she got to be in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And, uh... I mean, he was a theater director, so... Maybe it was a... That kind of marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love it, I love it. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) her friend, Margaret Skinner, was a fair shot, too. Skinner was a feminist and suffragist who lived in Scotland, but frequented Ireland once she got involved with the Glasgow branch of the Cuminamon. She was moved by the terrible conditions in Ireland, conditions created, as she and Markovich saw it, by British rule. She got pulled into the preparations for the Easter Rising by Markovich. According to Margaret, the Countess, quote, had heard of my work in the Kuminamon and wanted to talk to me. Markovich convinced Connolly to let Skinner serve as a sniper in the Irish Citizen Army. Markovich was not content to serve in a support role when it came down to the fight for Irish independence, nor was she content to let other capable women be sidelined. In the weeks leading up to the Rising, Margaret Skinner smuggled detonators and bomb-making equipment into Dublin. She and several other women also tested dynamite in the hills around Dublin. She said, quote, This time my duty was to go about Dublin, taking from hiding places dynamite and bombs secreted therein. Once, on my way back to Liberty Hall, with some dynamite wrapped in a neat bundle on the seat beside me, I heard a queer buzzing noise. It seemed to be coming from inside the bundle! Is it going off, I asked myself, and sit tight, expecting every moment to be blown to bits. But nothing happened. It was only the car wheels complaining as we passed over an uneven bit of track. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> Once the rising began, Skinner served as a scout, message runner, often dressed as a boy, and as a sniper. She was stationed with Markovich at St. Stephen's Green and was the only woman casualty. According to Markovich, Skinner quote, like myself, was in uniform and carried an army rifle. She had enlisted as a private in the ICA. She was one of the party who went out to set fire to a house just behind Russell's hotel. The English opened fire on them from the ground floor of a house just opposite. Poor Freddie Ryan was killed and Margaret was very badly wounded. Markovich, still confident in her friend's stiff upper lip, continued, Quote, Margaret's only regret was her bad luck in being disabled so early in the day, Wednesday of that Easter week, though she must have ta- suffered terribly. 
In her account of the Rising, Markovich describes without hesitation her own significance in the military proceedings. When I reported with the car to Commandant Mallon in Stevens Green, he told me that he must keep me. He said that owing to McNeil's calling off the volunteers, a lot of the men who should have been under him had to be distributed round other posts, and that few of those left him were trained to shoot, so I must stay and be ready to take up the work of a sniper. He took me round the green and showed me how the barricading of the gates and digging trenches had begun, and he left me in charge of this work while he went to superintend the erection of barricades in the streets and arrange other work. About two hours later, he definitely promoted me to be his second-in-command. This work was very exciting when the fighting began. I continued round and round the green, reporting back if anything was wanted or tackling any sniper who was particularly objectionable. I really like the... He definitely promoted me. <laughs> it's just funny how that's phrased. Though later she wouldn't stand in the way of early sexist legislation of the free state, from 1908 to 1916, Markovich embodied feminism. She ignored and waved aside claims that she couldn't or shouldn't do this or that. She's alleged to have said that her fashion advice to, was to, quote, dress suitably in short skirts and strong boots, leave your jewels in the bank, and buy a revolver. It's <laughs> amazing. Significantly, I think, of these three women, only Winifred Carney was born in Ireland. Markovich was born in London and Skinner in Scotland. All, though, were of Irish parents and found their way to the cause of Irish independence. Do you think that they're being raised... Or being, yeah, being born and at least for some of their lives raised or spending lots of time outside of Ireland allowed them to develop an Irish womanhood or a womanhood that was kind of outside of those like very strict Irish gender roles. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's. I'm not an expert here, but I know that from, from like things you've said in the past that like there are very strict expectations or were very strict expectations of Irish women. Yeah, of Irish women. Um, And that certainly gets more true once you get into the 20th century in the free state. Mm -hmm. But I think even there's like a saying that you don't know you're Irish until you leave. Yeah. And so for Skinner and Markovich to have grown up outside of Ireland Mm. and then to have like developed an Irish identity by going there and like seeing what was going on and Mm -hmm. wanting to end the impression of imperialism and stuff. That's... Mm -hmm. That's where I see. So it's not idea. just their the way that they saw their their womanhood, but also the way that they thought about their Irishness. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. That makes me think of the um, return movement. Wasn't that what it was called for the vote, the abortion vote, a few years yes. ago? Yeah, where like you saw people who like identified very strongly with Ireland. Yep. But who didn't live in Ireland yep. anymore? And, and I they definitely came back to vote for to Ireland open up has the abortion. such an, an interesting relationship with its immigrants, these it's people who leave. Yeah, yeah. Where, whereas other countries, Do it's not. kind of like bye, your expat, <laughs> and then it's it. Right, right, right. Where were we? Okay. Constance Constance Markovich, a wounded Margaret Skinner, and Winifred Carney, alongside 76 other women and 3,430 men, were arrested on April 29, 1916. At her defense, Markovich said, I went out to fight for Ireland's freedom, and it doesn't matter what happens to me. I did what I thought was right, and I stand by it. At the trials, only one woman was sentenced to death, Constance Markovich. And the court, quote, recommended the prisoner to mercy solely on account of her sex. 
Though Kumanaman women were relegated to support roles, there were threads of radical feminism and egalitarianism among the leaders of the Easter Rising. The fiercest proponents of that line of thinking, those leaders who insisted that the women of Kumanaman be utilized at the various posts around the city, or who accepted the women with guns as almost equals, or appointed them as their second-in-command, were, Definitely yeah, appointed them. they were executed for treason in the aftermath of the Rising. The execution of the seven signatories of the Proclamation of Independence and another nine rising leaders created a ripple effect through the Irish nationalist community. Though well within their legal right, the Irish rebels had, after all, committed treason against their government in wartime, the British government may have acted too hastily in dealing with the rebels. Public opinion swayed, and though most still supported Ireland's participation in the Great War, in the aftermath, in 1918, they cast their ballots for the successors of the Easter Rising rebels, the members of Sinn Féin, the Republican Party with radical separatist goals. Among those elected was... Countess Constance Markovich, who had escaped the firing squad in 1916 on account of her sex, but who never gave up the independence cause. Markovich, however, was more a nationalist than a feminist. She didn't go on to fight for women's rights so much as she fought for Irish independence. She supported Eamon de Valera, her friend, even though if she'd been assigned to his position in the Rising, she would have been sent home. She left the work of fighting for women's rights to the others, the members of Kumanaman and the suffragists of IWFL. In the grand scheme of things, the British arrested only 79 women compared to the 3,430 men in the wake of the Easter Rising. But the exclusion of the women from the narrative of Irish independence was intentional. The Free State, founded in 1922, did not rescind Irish women's right to vote. In fact, they extended universal suffrage in 1922, granting it to all men and women over the age of 21 in Dáil elections. Still, the leaders who ultimately shaped independent Ireland did not leave much room for women. Between 1922 and 2018, only 114 individual women in total have been elected to the Dáil. Their minority in the government had grave and almost immediate effects. It's like 4% of all uh, people elected. The doll is the, it's like the um, house of representatives. I figured. Okay. Some women politicians like Jenny Wise Power and Eileen Costello fought hard against the laws that would effectively marginalize women in the free state. They both opposed the 1925 Civil Service Regulation Amendment Bill, which sought to bar women from higher positions in civil service. Ernest Blythe, Minister for Finance, said that, quote, There is no doubt, but in certain situations in the civil service, you must discriminate with regard to sex. You cannot, as I have said before, send women as a night patrol along the border for the purpose of preventing smuggling. Oh, yeah? And Jenny Wise Power shot back, No men in a fight for freedom ever had such loyal cooperation from their women as the men who composed the present executive council. When they wanted messengers to go into dangerous places, they did not call on members of their own sex. Boom. Power and Costello both served in the Senate, which is much like our own Senate, um, with equal representation as opposed to the doll, which has proportional representation. Mm. Power also opposed the 1927 Juries Bill, which removed women from the right to jury service, and the 1936 Conditions of Employment Act, which excluded women from certain types of industrial employment. 
women like power and women in general were in a minority though. And those sexist laws were enacted, elbowing women out of full and equal public and political participation. And some of the women who were elected to office, like Margaret Collins O'Driscoll, the only woman who served in the doll between 1927 and 32, failed to vote or speak out against the laws that would ultimately hurt Irish women. Collins O'Driscoll, who was famous revolutionary Michael Collins' sister, for those of you who know a little bit about Irish independence, or who've watched all movies starring Liam Neeson. Uh, so she voted in favor of the 1929 censorship of publications bill, which banned information on birth control, as well as any hints of same-sex sex, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> that vote had dire consequences. Ireland had no sex education until the late 1990s and high levels of teen pregnancy for decades, with 20 per 1,000 Irish girls getting pregnant in 2001. Well into the 1980s, unwed teen mothers were confined in the Magdalene laundries where they had their babies and then the babies were taken away from them and adopted out to often American families. Some of those girls never made it out of the Magdalene asylums. Some of the babies too, right? Yeah. Even Constance Markovich, a leader of the Easter Rising, did little to stop the turn of the free state to one largely unwelcoming of women. Though she was wildly popular, an outspoken Irish hero, and the first woman elected to be a member of parliament, she chose not to take her seat for years because of broader nationalist politics rather than the immediate concerns of Irish women. In the 1918 elections, Markovich won the seat in Dublin against her opponent, Liam Field. She joined her Sinn Féin colleagues in refusing to take their seats in the House of Commons, forming instead their own Irish Parliament, the first doll, in Dublin, and launching the War of Independence. Cahal Brew uh, appointed her Minister of Labour, and she served from 1919 to 1922. She supported Eamon de Valera in the Irish Civil War, and when the anti-treaty side lost, uh, their side lost, she left the country. And like the other Republicans who disagreed fundamentally with partition, refused to take her seat in the doll in 1923. More women were on the anti-treaty side of things than the pro, so that in 1922, the majority of women who were elected to seats in the doll did not take them. Caitlin Brewer, Kathleen Lynn, Mary McSweeney, Kathleen Clark, and Kate O'Callaghan all refused to take their seats. Between 1927 to 32, only one woman, Margaret Collins O'Driscoll, um, was the only female member of the doll. The Senate was abolished in 1936, effectively curbing women's effectiveness in the Irish Parliament. The Joint Committee of Women's Societies and Social Workers advocated that at least one woman should be on every ballot in votes going forward to ensure equal representation. They were ignored. Women wouldn't be heard, for the most part, until the 1970s, when the Women's Progressive Association began agitating for women's voice and place in political life. The leaders who shaped the free state were not the radical socialist and feminist leaders who led the independence movement up through 1918. Instead, leaders like Eamon de Valera, who wrote in the 1937 Constitution that women's place was in the home, shaped independent Ireland into the Ireland that he dreamed of. And so the official narratives of Irish history, and particularly the founding myths like the 1960 Easter Rising, tended to write women out of them. 
Individuals like Constance Markovich were tokenism at best, put on display to show what an outlier she was, rather than how she represented the hopes and intentions of Irish women more broadly. The Winifred Carneys, the Margaret Skinneters, the Caitlin Bruas, the Kathleen Lynns barely got mentioned in that story, though they were on the front lines with Markovich and De Valera, both literally in the Easter Rising and War of Independence, and figuratively in politics and the constitutional establishment of a free state the end i i do like that the um that the irish like boy scouts were founded and trained by women yeah that's really interesting funny story at their first meeting the boys who were in attendance uh tried to kick constance markovich out of the meeting because they're like this is a no place for a woman this is a boys club (laughs) she founded it and then they were like well her her like buddy whatever his name is Bruja, that's not his name. Bloomer. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, he was like, uh, she paid for the ho- the hotel we're in, and <laughs> she's in charge. So, no. <laughs> nice. And then they were like, oh, okay, right. Teach me how to shoot, Constance Markovich. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, that kind of sums up the entire relationship with them is that they were like perfectly happy to benefit from them you know, in whatever ways they could, but then wanted to make it very clear, especially afterwards, that, like, the women did not have an active role. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the big boys. It was the boys. Them, you know? With their big old balls. Yeah, yeah, They did it all by themselves. Yeah. Classic. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, it wasn't super violent, unlike Elizabeth's, which is very violent. You've already heard. Hers was very violent. Is yours very violent? Um... Gratuitous descriptions of violence? Um, well, I mean, there is violence in it. Is It is a kind, probably a very different kind of violence than Elizabeth uh, described, I'm imagining. Mm. Um, there is some, there is some more violent violence. Mm. There is some more restrained violence. Mm. But Mine, this is violence. This is certainly violence. It's I mean, like this implicit is, violence, not I mean, explicit. It's not so much these women going out and hacking people's ears off or right. something. But, um, I mean, it, I think it has... It does have some in common with mine in that it's political violence, mm-hmm. right? And political—I mean, all violence is in some ways po- has elements of politics in it. I think. I mean, maybe. Um, or at least very many forms of violence. Not serial um, killing, maybe. Well, but if you're serial killing black people, sure, or women, which most serial killers, you know, many of them are. Anyway, yeah. where I'm going with this yeah. is that <laughs> um, the, your this episode probably has a lot in common or has some in common with where mine ends up hmm. with with the ways that people can acceptable forms of political violence. Well, I guess we'll have to look forward to that. Then. Yeah. 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 Hmm. yeah. Interesting. I don't know if it's any good, but we'll try. Okay, We'll try it out. So thanks for listening. Um, make sure you leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Cause that helps us be found by future fans of the show. Yes, please. You can follow us on Twitter at dig underscore history. You can join our dig history pod squad yes. on Facebook. Do that. You can download the Himalaya app and listen yes. to this next episode on there. Ad free. Ad free. If you become well, a member. if you become a premium member, you can get that content ad free on Himalaya. It's all like it, it's very streamlined. I like the Himalaya app a lot. Yeah, it's very smart. Yeah. So thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye.
This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. I said 1916, not 1917. You said 16, okay. yeah. For some reason, 1917 is what I heard in my head. <laughs> in 1909, Markovich and her friend Bulmer Hobson. <laughs> Bulmer. Bulmer. It sounds like Boomer. You get one sentence. I'll just do the rest of it. <laughs> That's fine. I don't care. I didn't write that sentence. I know. Or I fostered it. But you're killing me right now. Sorry. <clears throat> they wrote Maud Gon's radical... Um, they wrote... They... They... I I'm just going to put names. all this drama out of my head. Like, I literally... I don't have any space in my brain for... Good. Set it aside. drama. Good. There's no drama. There's only Zul. Oh, my life. I have to look it up. Inghenind na What can I say? You don't have any discussion points? You, no, you I, finished this copy like an hour ago. <laughs> Ten minutes before you guys. <laughs> this one's not even like a, a hard one, but like I worked with a girl at the library at Wells whose name was Siobhan. Yeah, but it's spelled S-I-O-B-A-N. And I didn't, I'd never seen it before in my entire life. And I, it was my job to call people and to tell them like when to come in that day. Cause like someone was, was, had not come in. And so my boss was like, oh, just call Siobhan. But she had a super thick Cuban accent. So I was like, who? And like, then she was like, she handed me the list of people to call on their phone numbers. And I looked at it and I was like. Oh my god. Like I have to call this girl in her dorm room and I have no idea how to pronounce her name. And I was like, "Hi, uh are you Seal?" And I, I was like waiting. I was like, "Maybe if I just draw this out, she'll say it." And she was like, "Siobhan." Like she clearly like gets this all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so now I'm like paranoid about Irish it's names. Eilish. Eilish. Like yeah. Billy Eilish. Okay. <laughs>